I've always made it a point to incorporate classic pre- and post-prohibition-era cocktails in Pod Tiki because I truly believe the spirit of Tiki spawned from this Promethean period. Furthermore, the people responsible for the creation of Tiki were themselves products of that time. But how do I tackle this one? The Mai Tai, for all its glory, insomuch that it is the most prolific of tiki cocktails, pervasive the world over, famous for being the godfather of tiki drinks, my personal favorite tiki drink, the drink we order first to test the merit of a new tropical bar, still does not have to live up to the moniker of being America's first cocktail. The circuitous twists and turns and tributaries that branch off of this story run on longer than that last sentence. I never imagined when I set out to cover a cocktail I didn't even know was this popular that I would find myself bedeviled by such overwhelming enthusiasm on the topic. And we all know too well on Pod Tiki that where enthusiasm is grown, seeds of discord are sown. Luckily, where to start this tale is simple. At the beginning. Buckle up, Buttercup. This is going to be a long one. So don't bother measuring, just bring the bottle over. In fact, bring four bottles. Cognac, rye whiskey, herb saint, and peshads. Because we're making a Sazerac. Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Tony, and this is Pod Tiki. Ah, the beginning. The before time. When things were easy and drinks didn't have 12 ingredients and so many rules. When we all just agreed. Ha! I don't know what kind of bizarro world you thought we were going to for a minute, but the Sazerac has been the center of drama since before it was invented. You see, the Sazerac is often credited with being the oldest cocktail, dating way back to the 1850s. Thing is, a New York newspaper called the Balance and Columbian Repository uses the term cocktail to explain a concoction made of spirit, water, sugar, and bitters way back in 1806. The closest living relative we have to that early libation would be an old-fashioned. In modern day, whether on the rocks, shaken, or stirred, the ice counts as water. The addition of absinthe or some other anise-based liqueur is the only thing distinguishing a Sazerac from an old-fashioned. In broad terms, any spirit with any mixture of water, bitters, and sweetener would fall under the cocktail umbrella. Pun intended. It seems the Sazerac was for sure an early cocktail, but not the first. Prior to early 19th century, bitters were commonly used as medicinal tinctures. A travel article by the BBC tells of bitters being created in the then-named town of Angostura, Venezuela, around 1824, as an elixir to pacify ailing stomachs. Yes, that Angostura. But this couldn't have been the first, as we previously had bitters being mentioned as a cocktail ingredient in 1806. But it does lend to the cocktail being an American invention, seeing as how bitters would have made their way up to the U.S. from South America. To put things in perspective, um, when the first printed definition of a cocktail was published in 1806, the United States had only been a thing for about 20 years. Alexander Hamilton died two years before we knew what cocktails were. Chances are, though, that he had a few cocktails in his life, 
because spirits were also tentatively used as remedies. It's pretty easy to imagine how a drop or two of medicinal bitters may be added to a certain recreational remedy like whiskey or rum to aid in recovery. It's forming a sort of, I don't know, how do you say, like, a, what's the word? It's, it's, it's right there. It's like a, a cocktail. Taking it a few steps further, laudanum was an alcohol-slash-opium mixture used as a painkiller and to calm what the Chemical Institute of Canada refers to as, quote-unquote, female disorders. Don't look at me, ladies. You take that shit up with Canada. Anyway, if the earliest use of cocktail to explain a drink recipe was 1806, what did it mean before that? Which leads us to our second controversy. Among the myriad of origin stories for the term cocktail, we have Aztec princesses, West African scorpions, and British sailors in Mexico. You can look those up yourself. This episode is long enough. My personal favorite throw, though probably apocryphal telling, is that of a horse's tail that has been docked or cut close to the base, making the hair point upwards, giving the impression of a cock's tail feathers. This was meant to signify a racehorse that was not purebred, but mixed. Or, the practice of cocktailing refers to mixing together the last bits of spirits, or the tails, from different barrels into one and selling it at a discount. Okay, that makes a little bit more sense, and honestly, I may have bought either one of those if it wasn't for this next bit. In the French region of Bordeaux, the term cocktail had been used for centuries before becoming to uh, before coming to America to describe mixed drinks. End of story. You know those little cups on a base that hold one egg? They're used for eating them soft boiled. The term for that is an egg cup. Coq in French for rooster, and even though roosters don't lay eggs, the French translation of egg cup is cocotier. Eventually, some brilliant Frenchman discovered this shaped glass was perfect for sipping, and a drink being served in a coquetier was known as a coquetel. As an aside, the term coquette in French is the masculine form of flirtatious, a virtue of the French we sometimes borrow when in our drink. The term coquetel made its way over to the New World during the American Revolution, where we subsequently find it published with the English translation of cocktail. It would appear the distinction of spirit, water, sugar, and bitters as ingredients was an American invention. In France, there are no such frivolous rules to drinking. Returning to our main narrative... The first incarnation of a Sazerac is purported to have been served in a coquetier, adding to the mythos of it being the first cocktail. Which brings us 30 years down the road to 1834. That's when Antoine Amade Peychaud opened his pharmacy at 123 Royal Street in New Orleans. Little Antoine came to New Orleans as a child circa 1790s after his family was forced to abscond from their home on Saint-Domingue during a slave revolt. This little uprising saw the island country of Saint-Domingue subsequently change its name to Haiti and become not only the first independent Caribbean nation, but the world's first black republic. That's right, 
His family were French plantation owners who were forced out during the Haitian Revolution. Shortly after opening up shop in the 1830s, the now, now fully grown Antoine Peychaud created his American Aromatic Bitter Cordial as a medicinal supplement. It just so happened that the medicine it was supplementing was French brandy. Peychaud himself was known to enjoy a dash or two of his own medicine at his favorite coffee house. Now, don't get it twisted. Coffee houses were bars. Despite the Girls Gone Wild reputation, people in New Orleans pride themselves on holding their booze with class. Real gangsters don't need to go around telling people they're gangsters. One of the ways they kept it classy was through the thin disguise of the quote-unquote coffee house serving alcohol. One such establishment was Merchants Exchange Coffee House. Owner of Merchants Exchange, Sewell Taylor, was the sole importer of a cognac named Sazerac de Fourgéville. In 1850, Taylor sold the business to Aaron Bird, who continued serving the popular cognac and, seizing the opportunity for a promotion, renamed the Merchants Exchange to Sazerac Coffee House. It was about this time the local pharmacist became a regular. He would amble up to the bar, order a cognac, and, slipping a small bottle from his waistcoat, add a few drops of tincture to his coquetier. Thanks to an 1857 advertising campaign, Peychaud's bitters spread across the city, becoming synonymous with New Orleans cocktails. This mixture of cognac and Peychaud's is thought to be the primordial ancestor of the Sazerac sometimes crediting Antoine Peychaud as its inventor. We, this we know for sure, and there is a version of the story that stops there. But another claim goes to Sazerac Coffee House bartender Leon Lamont, who is credited with adding sugar to the mix in 1858, making it closer to a true cocktail by definition. Sometime later, Lamont added absinthe in what I can only assume was an attempt to make the drink even more French. So, 1858. That's the date in which we have the ingredients of a Sazerac being mixed together into a cocktail. To put that in perspective once more, we're talking about the Sazerac, a drink still being served around the world today, being mixed at bars three years before the Civil War. Doctors were still prescribing opium for headaches. Anesthesia was here, drink some whiskey and bite this stick. We're talking Abe and Mary Todd Lincoln sipping Sazeracs till they emancipated them britches. Why do you think all of the rooms in the White House, out of all the rooms, they named the bedroom after Lincoln? I'm not saying, I'm just saying. I digress. We have the recipe in 1858, but not the drink. Because there's still no documentation of this cocktail being called a Sazerac for another 30 years. We'll get there. All right, let's take a breather, go refill your glass, and so it goes. The Sazerac Coffee House continued mixing a drink unique to their bar containing Sazerac brand cognac and Peychaud's bitters that may or may not have started being asked for by name Sazerac Cocktail. Now we pick up with what we know for sure. In 1870, after a few more changes in ownership, an employee named Thomas Handy bought the Sazerac Coffee House. Handy seems to have had a good business mind, 
Not long after taking over the bar, Thomas Handy and Company purchased Peychaud's bitters from Antoine Peychaud, who had fallen on hard times, obtained the sole rights to Sazerac de Fourgeville Cognac, and most notably dropped coffee from the bar's name, creating the original Sazerac House. It would appear everything's coming up handy. Until the following circumstances paved the way for one of the most cantankerous debates in the whole of Cocktailia. During the reign of Thomas Handy, we see a shift away from the titular cognac in lieu of rye whiskey. Finally, in 1899, in a fraternity paper nonetheless, the Sazerac cocktail was mentioned by name in print for the first time. That's a milestone for sure, but still no recipe is given. Then, in 1901, Thomas Handy and Company trademarked the name Sazerac, making it one of only four officially trademarked cocktails to this day, and release a pre-mixed bottled cocktail made with rye whiskey. Thus, the first time we see a cocktail officially called the Sazerac, it contains rye and not cognac. But why the switch? Well, like the rest of this story, there's a few more convoluted theories. The first harkens to an 1885 phylloxera uh, blight that compromised France's grape harvest. All right, when you get into these uh, naming, these Latin names for, for animals, uh, phylloxera is a species of aphid, or louse, that attacks grapevines at the root. The 1885 outbreak was purportedly so bad that all wine and wine derivatives, like cognac, became unavailable. Talk about a lousy break. Though we know this happened, and the timeline fits, cocktail historians argue another factor that at least aided in the rise of rye. Changing tastes. Chris McMillian, a 30-year veteran bartender and co-founder of the New Orleans Museum of American Cocktail, which is definitely on my short list of places to visit now, contends that the location of the Sazerac House fell directly on the city block separating the French Creole side of New Orleans from the American side. Furthermore, it appears the Sazerac House, at least during Thomas Handy's time, catered more toward the American predilection for whiskey. It was simply more America, especially in post-Civil War South, to drink firewater rather than the fancy brandies enjoyed by the classist and effete northerners. According to McMillian, this means the Sazerac was always made with rye whiskey, because Sazerac House was an American bar. This theory is compounded by an 1895 newspaper article uncovered by historian David Wondrick. The paper lauds Vincent Merritt, a bartender at Sazerac House, as being the best whiskey cocktail maker in New Orleans. They claim all this points to the Sazerac always being a rye drink. You could see how this would spark controversy among purists who know the Sazerac was born using French brandy and Peychaud's bitters. Or was it? I would be remiss not to mention the improvised, or the, I'm sorry, the improved whiskey cocktail. This early old-fashioned riff bears striking resemblance to a modern Sazerac and goes back to around the same time. But what do I think? Well, thank you for asking. I think 
Antoine Peychaud began adding his bitters to Sazerac Cognac. Then, borrowing from other recipes and techniques of the time, the drink evolved into a standardized signature cocktail for the Sazerac House. Part of that evolution was making a switch to rye whiskey to appease the popular tastes of the day in order to reach a larger swath of drinkers. We know the trademark Sazerac cocktail is made with rye, but I also believe that the Creole side of town probably continued to order them with cognac. In fact, I imagine any bartender worth his salt would be able to discern by accent which version a guest wanted. I think the location of the Sazerac house positioned it to be a confluence of two drinking cultures who probably wouldn't even agree back then. Even the IBA, that's the International Bartenders Association, claims the drink can be made with cognac or rye whiskey. Perhaps the legacy of the Sazerac is that there is no right way. Oh, come on. You guys know the purist in me won't let that fly. My conclusion is that this true Sazerac is made with rye whiskey because that's how it was made the first time it officially used the name. However, that doesn't necessarily mean it's the best version. Nevertheless, the story doesn't end here. In 1919, while the ink was still wet on the 19th Amendment, Thomas H. Handy and Company saw the writing on the bottle and relaunched as the Sazerac Company Incorporated. From there, they began diversifying into restaurants, soft drinks, dairy, and groceries. Though the original Sazerac House was demolished by the turn of the century, the brand made it through Prohibition, still holding the rights to Peychaud's Bitters and the name Sazerac. The company continued to grow, acquiring Herb Saint, New Orleans' local answer to absinthe, in 1949. In 2005, Sazerac launched their own brand of rye whiskey distilled by Buffalo Trace. They also boast ownership of the new Sazerac de Forge Cognac, which means not only does the Sazerac company own the name of the cocktail, but all the ingredients needed to make one. Today, their litany of brands include Buffalo Trace, Pappy Van Winkle, 1792 Bourbon, Fireball Whiskey, Weller, Wheatley Vodka, Southern Comfort, Eagle Rare, Canadian Mist, Booth's Gin, and a plethora of others. Oh, and just for us tiki heads out there, they own Myers Jamaican Rum, too. As of this episode, the current Sazerac Bar resides in the Roosevelt Hotel in New Orleans, and of course, they lease the name from the Sazerac Company. And with that, we come to the end of our history lesson. I don't know about y'all, but I am certainly ready to move on to the fun part. Let's make a drink. According to the Sazerac Company's website, the official way to prepare a Sazerac is as follows. Fill a rocks glass with ice and set aside. In a second rocks glass, place one sugar cube and soak it with three dashes Peychaud's bitters. Muddle sugar cube and bitters, then add one and a half ounce of rye whiskey. Dump ice from the first glass and coat the inside with quarter ounce of herb saint. Discard excess herb saint. Pour sugar, bitters, whiskey mix from second glass into the first and garnish with lemon peel. Okay, at first, glass this, at first glance, this recipe can appear a bit pretentious, especially the part where the company that makes Herb Saint, builds waste into the preparation. I assure you, however, the ritual of building a Sazerac is part of the experience, including the Herb Saint rinse. 
It seems fitting that a drink that elicits such passionate opinions would incorporate the same passion in its preparation. Therefore, I feel simply making the standard rye whiskey recipe and calling it a day for the podcast would be taking the easy way out. So, in the following section, I'm going to try Sazeracs with rye, cognac, and a 50-50 mix. Let's jump into some ingredients. For the cognac version, I return to my old faithful, Pierre Ferrand. I use the 1840 original formula, which is a VS. The Ferrand website focuses heavily on their family lineage, but offers no information regarding how they actually got into the brandy business and all that. Save for this little fun fact. Ferran Cognac was begun by one Eli or Eli Ferran and continued for 10 generations of Eli Ferrans. I'm not joking. For the next 10 generations, they were all named Eli Ferran. We're going to have to return to Ferran in another episode after I uncover some more fun facts. For now, though, we should at least cover that brandy is distilled wine and cognac is a brandy made in the cognac region of France. I've always enjoyed sipping Ferran neat, but it's amazing in a cocktail. It's just just sweet and woody enough and very well aged. For the rye version, I fall back on another go-to of mine, Rittenhouse Rye out of Heaven Hill Distillery. Now, I know you're probably wondering, why not use the actual Sazerac brand whiskey? Ugh. Okay, honestly, I just think naming a whiskey after the cocktail is gimmicky. Like they're banking on the branding rather than the quality of the product. It comes across to me as a corporation trying to pass as authentic. Kind of cheesy. Being in the cigars and spirits world, though, I am lucky to have a plethora of trusted bourbon aficionados at my disposal for picking brains, and Rittenhouse comes up repeatedly when I ask about the best expression of a traditional rye for cocktails. Rittenhouse Straight Rye Whiskey traces its roots to 1934 and Philadelphia's Rittenhouse Square. This whiskey is certified bottled in bond, which means it must be distilled at a single distillery in a six-month period, aged at least four years at a federally bonded warehouse, and bottled at exactly 100 proof. It's more than I really wanted to get into on an already prodigious episode, but the idea of a bonded warehouse has to do with the amount of taxes a distiller pays. Before federal aging houses, a spirit maker would have to pay taxes on the pre-aged amount of liquid. Even though a common barrel loses almost three gallons to the angel's share, that's absorption and evaporation, but if the spirits are aged in a federally bonded warehouse, a manufacturer only pays taxes on the amount of spirit remaining after aging. Okay, moving on. Herb Saint is an anise-flavored liqueur from New Orleans, initially created as an absinthe substitute. During World War I, J. Marion Legendre and Reginald Parker learned how to make absinthe while fighting in France. Initially released stateside in 1934 as Le Vendre Absinthe, it never actually contained any of Absinthe's primary ingredient, wormwood. After the Federal Alcohol Control Administration ruled that they couldn't call it Absinthe, the name was changed to Herb Saint, which in French Creole translates to sacred herb. 
Urbsaint and its cousin Pernod are commonly used as absinthe substitutes, but being a New Orleans original, it's now replaced absinthe as part of the official Sazerac recipe. Plus, it's really good. And yes, I know the Sazerac company also owns Herbsaint, but they purchased it as an existing product. They didn't make their own and name it after themselves as a marketing ploy like they did with the whiskey. We already covered Peychaud's bitters, which brings us to our final Sazerac controversy. Sugar cube or simple syrup? This is the only one I personally have had a hard time reconciling. I try as best as I could to stick to traditional, or I, I, I try to stay as best as I can sticking to tradition in my cocktails, especially of this era. And back then, they didn't make syrups, they used sugar cubes. I've already expressed my fondness for the pomp and circumstance of preparing this drink, but I have to side with the plethora of modern-day bartenders that have made the switch to sugar cube over, or have made the switch to sugar syrup over the cube. There's simply not enough liquid in a Sazerac to fully dissolve the sugar. Even if you opt for a cocktail mixing beaker and stir your sugar in, it never gets all the way dissolved. This leaves the drink unbalanced, bitter, and in the case of the rye version, too high proof. Just because we're using a syrup doesn't mean we have to sacrifice quality, though. I make my simple syrup using a one-to-one ratio of water to pure cane sugar. In essence, the only thing changing is the state of a solid to a liquid. Not only that, but using sugar syrup actually adds a very pleasant silkiness to the texture of the drink. Another modern adaptation would be the use of the aforementioned mixing glass or cocktail beaker in lieu of a second rocks glass. This allows for the sugar-bitter spirit mixture to be stirred with ice before being added to the Herbsaint rinsed glass. With such strong flavors, especially when using a biting rye whiskey, proper proportions and dilution are crucial. My rule is stir till the glass frosts over then immediately transfer to the drinking glass. Careful not to let the mixture sit in the wet ice for too long. For this reason, we always want to have the Herbsaint lined glass ready to go before we start mixing and stirring the other stuff. Now, don't worry about the Herbsaint sliding down to the bottom of the glass. It sticks to the sides pretty well, and even if it falls, it's still mixed into the drink. Let me epilogue all of that by saying literally... Every source differs on dates, addresses, names of owners, order of events, or even the existence of certain people. So, I have combed all the info I could muster, culling the exorbitant fields of folly to give you the best educated approximation of events I could. I'm confident in the narrative I've relayed because it's the one where all the random facts fit together and make the most sense. Throughout Patiki and my life experience in general, I tend to find that the easiest explanation is probably the truth. So, without further ado, the Sazerac is quarter ounce herb saint for rinsing, half ounce sugar syrup, four dashes Peychaud's bitters, two ounces rye whiskey. Rinse a rocks glass with herb saint and set aside. In a mixing glass, add sugar syrup, bitters, and rye whiskey. Stir with ice and strain into the rinsed rocks glass. Garnish with lemon. 
Most recipes call for a peel. I find that to overpower the olfactory balance, so I use a twist. Right off the bat, the essence of this drink is warm and spicy. Heavy on the rye, but soft and silky in feel. I find the anise of the herb saint is lost under all the rye at first, but emerges later as a cool numbing sensation on the tongue. I don't like having to wait for the herb saint and bitters to come through. It seems like the flavors of rye and anise are constantly at odds and don't really complement one another. I love these flavors individually. Together, they just don't do it for me. In conclusion of the official Sazerac recipe, it's an old-fashioned that's trying too hard. But when we follow the same recipe using cognac, soft, elegant, smoky sweet, with a bit of dried fruit. Silky anise is very subtly omnipresent under a patina of well-aged brandy distinct of the cognac region. If the rye Sazerac is indicative of Civil War-era Americana ruggedness, then this is definitely the sophisticated French version. I can't say enough about this version of the Sazerac. Herb Saint combines so much better with cognac than with rye whiskey. And Peychaud's bitters are like the cherry on top, all mildly sweetened to perfection. In case you haven't picked up on it yet, this is verily my favorite version of this cocktail. But what about the popular 50-50 Sazerac? As an attempt to amalgamate both origins into an homogenized blur, some bartenders are known to use a split base of half cognac, half rye whiskey. I don't blame the attempt. New Orleans is truly a multicultural enigma wherein Dust Bowl Americana meets French savoir-faire meets Dixie, Antebellum, and all the other canceled country music band names. But as I've said before, equality is not about pretending we're all the same, it's about celebrating our differences. In any case, the 50-50 has its ups and downs. Cognac does help mollify the, uh, the sting of rye. The cognac adds an unmistakable je ne sais quoi, almost a delicate creaminess. Then the high sting of, right, of, of rye just hits like a snake bite. This concoction could be a good exercise in playing with the nuance of rye or herb saint if we change the amounts. Uh, there's a little bit too much bite in there for me still, but perhaps rather than a 50-50, a 75-25 may work. In closing... We see here the perfect example of the evolution of a cocktail. From a common ancestor, there's a divergence wherein survival of the fittest, in this case, changing palates, renders rye whiskey the dominant outcome. To keep in this analogy, the 50-50 Sazerac is akin to the claim that we all have a bit of residual ancestral DNA within us. Where the analogy fails is that I don't believe we'll be seeing a resurgence of Cro-Magnon Man anytime soon. But the Cognac Sazerac is still holding on as the better version with those in the know. We have a VHS versus Betamax situation here. Problem is, the official Sazerac has been trademarked and is well known in popular culture as using rye whiskey. 
Therefore, I believe the cognac version should be its own cocktail. You know, the early human ancestor got its name from the region in France where the skeletons were found, Cro-Magnon. So, I think this ancestor of the Sazerac, using French cognac, should be called the Cro-Magnon. You heard it here first. Now let's make it happen. So, let's raise a glass of your favorite version to Antoine Peychaud, Thomas Handy, Leon Lamont, Abe and Mary Todd, all those crazy cats along the way, and of course you all who have been enjoying Cocotels for over 200 years. Till next time, I want to thank you all for sticking through this intense episode. Remember, if you would like to go back and recapitulate, every episode of Podtiki is posted as a written blog on podtiki.com. Sources for this episode are legion and are listed under the blog post for this on podtiki.com. Uh, some quick plugs. I want to make sure that you all can find the podcast on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, uh, Google Play, um, Spotify is the one I use the most. You can also please follow us on social media. You can find the podcast at pod underscore tiki on Instagram. Also, my personal page, rum underscore poet on Instagram. You can also just search uh, pod tiki on Facebook and you'll find us there. Got a lot of cool conversations going on, threads there. Always posting recipes and little little things. Um, please follow us on YouTube where you can find episodes of Inside the Mug. That is the recap episode I do, video episode I do, um, recapping pretty much what we went over in the podcast, but also adding some little behind-the-scenes stuff of why I picked that drink, what the research was like, uh, you know, personal experiences with the cocktail, or sometimes I go off on a tangent for 30 minutes and talk about nothing. Um, but that's it. That's always cool. I would like to start going live. We need a few more subscribers to go live. We're almost there. Please go on and jump on. Like and subscribe the YouTube stuff. Um, please make sure to like and subscribe. Everything. You know You know the deal. Just hitting a simple like button and subscribing helps us out a lot, guys. Um, and people, I know every podcast says that. But basically, when w- the more numbers we have, the better we show up on the listing in the podcast uh, uh, generators. And the better we look and the more we can... We can look to advertisers and ho- hopefully, you know, spread the community as much as we can. Uh, also want to give a shout out to Surfside Sips. We still got a promotion going with them. If you guys need any of your high-end quality uh, custom glass straws, um, or if you don't want custom, you just want some basics, they have packages put together for all kinds of basic needs. Let's say you just want a travel set for your family. You got a family of four. You you got you guys want to go on a rest out to a restaurant, or you're going on vacation. They make these cool little sets already put together with um, four straws, a little uh, you know different sizes, and, and a carrying case. And uh, it's you can get everything you need at SurfsideSips.com. Andrew's a great guy. Always been good to the podcast. Make sure when you check out, you type in Pod Tiki, all one word, all caps. And that'll get you 20% off your order, and I will get a little kickback from them so that they know that you heard it from Pod Tiki. 
Also want to give a big shout out to a couple of buddies of mine in the band called Malibu Blackout. They are uh, announcing or dropping some new music this week. Um, actually, they've always got new music out, and this is a podcast, and you might listen to this two years from now. So just go to Spotify and check out Malibu Blackout, spelt just like it sounds. Um, I am partial to the song Big Sky. If you're in the Nashville area looking for a cool little uh, little psychedelic uh, tribute band, then I'll check out the Tin Roof Cats, who are always doing stuff around town with um, Grateful Dead tribute stuff. And... I believe that is all I have for plugs this week, so I appreciate you sticking through that, even though the episode was already kind of long. Um, yeah, let's just end it with the classic Pod Tiki ending, everybody. My name is Tony, and this has been Pod Tiki, so keep it tiki. <laughs>